This is a Difference Makers podcast from SavannahNow.com, where Savannah's community leaders come to talk about what they do, how they do it, and why. These are trying times, so today's Difference Maker won't address the coronavirus, health and economic scares, or social distancing. Instead, local film icon Stratton Leopold will share his thoughts on the future of film and talk about his other areas of expertise, including ice cream. Difference Makers is presented by the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Oscars showed us once again that filmmaking is evolving at the pace of a Vin Diesel blockbuster. The business is moving away from the studio model, shaking the Hollywood establishment. Joining us to talk about that and more is Strat Leopold, a 40-year veteran of the film industry and a producer on more than 20 movies, many of them big-budget films. Leopold is our latest difference maker. My name is Adam Van Brimmer, and I host this podcast as part of my duties as the editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. Zach Dennis is a Difference Makers producer. Every other week, we feature a Savannah Difference Maker on this podcast. They hail from several sectors, including commerce, government, education, arts and culture, and philanthropy. You probably recognize the names or at least the organizations that these Difference Makers represent. This podcast is a chance to learn what makes them so successful. Thank you for listening. Pleased to be joined on Difference Makers by Stratton Leopold today, who, in terms of community leaders, has been a community leader here for a long time and obviously represents Savannah very, very well beyond our city and our area. And uh, I'm glad that he was able to come in today and, and spend some time with us. We are taping this during the Savannah Film Festival, so I'm sure the store is very busy <laughs> down there on Broughton Street. So before we get into the bio, talk about the store during Film Festival. It's always busy, but does Film Festival ramp it up that much more? Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. Um, does it ramp it up? It ramps it up in waves mm. because prior to a film, you have people coming in, you have guests coming in ordering sandwiches and things, and then ice cream after. It's just, it, it does happen in waves as opposed to a continuous flow. Yeah, that gives you a little little downtime to, to stock back up. To, to, sure. to catch your breath. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, as we always start with the different speakers, we start with the bio. And mm-hmm. I, you're Savannah's own, and you're family started the ice cream business here in 1919 a century ago a century Uh, ago talk about growing up in savannah and growing up in a in a family business well growing up in savannah was idyllic in those days i must say it was the street cars were right there you play in the streets you go down the street and play with joe ryan or billy walsh your parents weren't worried about you Mm -hmm. um your father come out and yell your name and you come home Mm -hmm. it was um i'm sure that way in small town america generally but it seemed very special here and of course your dad owned an ice cream store yeah so you had friends you had a lot of friends a lot of friends (laughs) (laughs) because everyone liked ice cream and everyone loved ours. So everyone came by and always someone to play with. Levy Colson was down the street, just friends everywhere. Mm -hmm. And um, just, I used to enjoy just lying, literally, my earliest recollection is probably about age three or four. I remember lying down on the curb girl's bench outside, just looking at clouds, looking at the sky, looking at clouds. And one day I remember seeing birds flying around. Now, Hitchcock had not made the movie yet, (laughs) but I remember feeling panic. Oh my God, I'm going inside. (laughs) And I ran inside just as a little kid. No, it was was something back then. It really was. 
How involved were you in the business? Uh, at what age did they first pull you in? They pulled me in, I think, uh, age tw- 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. I started washing churns with a long-handled brush. Mm-hmm. In those days, ice cream was packed after it, when it came out of the machine in five-gallon galvanized metal churns. Mm-hmm. We lined those in parchment paper mm-hmm. and then put ice cream in. Mm-hmm. So after the use, you have to wash them. So that was my job then. Then I graduated to washing glasses behind a soda fountain, which petrified my mother because she was afraid that I would break a glass. You know, they had the three brush things that you'd wash them in there and cut myself, which I didn't. And in fact, it's the same sink that's at the shop now that I did that as as, as a kid. Different brushes, I hope. Well, dishwasher now, yeah. <laughs> um, aside from from working in the ice cream shop and, and having plenty of friends, what were your what were your interests as a boy in Savannah? Well, I was in Boy Scouts, age eleven. We had a troop at church, and enjoyed that for years. I started in photography. Um, what what did I start processing? Probably age eleven or twelve as well in the bathroom at home. Mm-hmm. Processing black and white film. I'm trying to think, how did I get into that? I hope you had a couple of bathrooms. Well, we had one. <laughs> and in fact, uh, Michael George, who lived with us, was the oldest brother. The light switch was on the outside, and I was loading oh, no. film in the darkness. I, I didn't have a changing bag. I was loading film. All of a sudden, light. Oh. And I'm screaming, no, and grabbing it, just pulling it to me. Of course, it was fogged. Yeah. But, and your brother's laughing on the other side of the door, uh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's, uh, I did that for a number of years. In fact, I bought my first enlarger. I guess my dad bought it for me, a little Federal enlarger, which was not much more than a toy. Then I saved my money, and I bought a Solar Autofocus, which I used. But there's a, there's a connection with, with the morning news, and I'll mm-hmm. tell you about it, too, with that. Um, anyway, by age 14, I'd saved money. I was shooting for money. I was getting paid. Mm-hmm. In fact, we're producing a centennial book, and we found my branding, little, little things that I did. I would stamp um, photo buy things, and if you want copies, call things. Mm-hmm. But um, so by, for age 14, I got a business license, and Johnny Constantine set me up to shoot sports photos uh, for commercial high school. Mm-hmm. So I was being paid by commercial high to shoot sports. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Chris Phillips, who's Billy Phillips' son, I, I, I was telling Chris, I have great shots of your dad back then, back in the 50s, because mm-hmm. Billy Phillips was quite a good ball player for a commercial high. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I was being paid to do that. I shot weddings. I did all sorts of things. So... Um, I could never afford the really good enlargers, the Omegas or the Besslers. Mm-hmm. And I got to know Jim Bisson mm-hmm. and, and Andy Hickman, mm-hmm. who were the photographers for the newspaper when you were down on Bay Street. Right. And they were incredibly great mentors, both of them. What they, what they would let me do, I'd bring my own paper to print. And they had Bestlers. They had, they had the best of and equipment down there. And I'd go into the news. By now, I'm 15, probably. Mm-hmm. I'd go in there at night and print using the equipment. Right. And they would they would drop in and give me hints about how to burn in and how to dodge and think just how to make really good print. It was amazing school. Wow. And that interest then started segueing a bit into television. 
And back in those days, um, NBC Channel 3 was on top of the Liberty National Bank building mm-hmm. on Bull and Broaden, mm-hmm. which sadly is not there now. But Master Control was on the roof, that little shack up there. And I got to know Ralph Price. So I said, and I was 15 now, maybe. I said, Ralph, I really want to learn about television. So I was up there at Master Control. They were teaching me how to ride gain and do things in television back in black and white TV days, mm-hmm. which, was, which was for a kid. I mean, it was, it was, again, school. It was fascinating. That, of course, is driving your interest uh, um, to the future? Yeah, maybe. Maybe it was latent. I don't know. Because then I went to Benedictine. And then, well, I went to Massey School before that. So, in fact, my late dear friend Howard Morrison and I were classmates since age right. two. Since, I'm sorry, not, that's not correct. Since second grade. I got right. the two in the wrong place. Right. Um, but at, at Benedictine, I became involved in science. And I was part of the first class of the science seminar in Westinghouse Science Talent Search. And with that... Became fascinated and really interested in physics and chemistry. I was really good in chemistry, mm-hmm. and wanted to pursue that. And in space, I was. I read everything that the library had on science fact, science fiction, everything. And that was a big fascination of mine. That was huge back then. Um, so, I, so I studied chemistry a lot. Um, and back then, we with the science seminar, Oatland Island was a CDC, was a um, lab back okay. then. And uh, George Pierce was chief scientist there. His wife, Sally Pierce, both are gone now. She was she was quite the painter. She lived at Tybee. Mm-hmm. And between Dr. Pierce and Dr. Miles, I just, it was, again, school, learned so much. My interest in rocketry back then, Alec Ormond was at Union Camp, which was Union Camp yeah. back then. International and, paper now. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I was interested in, in the chemistry of propellants. Mm-hmm. So we would, in his backyard there in Kensington Park, mm-hmm. we set up a little test stand. He had, he machined or had the, uh, the folks out at the plant machine a rocket, if you will, just a, a cylinder with um, with adjustable nacelles. You could take off the, the, the back end of it and add a different form or add a different, a different angle nacelle. Uh, to test thrust, and we set it up literally with a, with a with a scale, and he had a concrete slab, and we'd hide behind that, and we mixed gun basically gunpowder. Uh, we started with that as propellant, and we make different different shapes. For instance, one with a flat end was least propellant, one that had a sil- had a hole through it, all the way through, so you have more burn area, creating more gas, creating more thrust for a shorter period of time. We did a cruciform one. We did all sorts of things just. To Testing thrust, which again, uh, a fascinating time for a kid. Right. What do you ultimately first chase coming out of high school? Physics, astrophysics. I'm not sure I knew what it meant. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what, you know, I was in a scholarship at Georgia Tech and yeah. didn't know what Georgia Tech meant either, and didn't know why I had to take industrial drawing even though I was a pure science major, mm-hmm. and didn't want to take it at, at Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday at 8 in the morning, especially. Saturday at 8 yeah, in the morning. Yeah, Saturday. Okay. So that sort of uh, said I got to transfer, so I did. 
<laughs> but um, no, it was, I'm not sure I knew what it meant. I ended up studying biology a lot. But right. then, and that, that's, uh, that's my mother's influence there. My mother was a frustrated physician. She was really good. Her diagnostic skills were excellent. Uh, when we were sick as kids, she would literally graph out all the information, temperature, whatever, uh, diagnosis. And back when doctors made house calls, they'd come in and it's like a chart to them. They had everything there. Mm-hmm. I say frustrated because she was born in the wrong country at the wrong time. She, w- My parents came from Greece. Mm-hmm. And back in those days, there was no way a female would be a physician in right. Greece. Right. And in Europe generally, I think, it'd be very difficult. But she had the talent, and my brother, who wanted to be a a singer, he had a great voice, Mm -hmm. he drank the Kool-Aid, he became a physician. Mm -hmm. I studied to a point, and I just rebelled against it, and I was much more, since I was by far the youngest of the three of us, 17 years younger than my brother, 15 than my sister. So I was raised as an only child, really, in many ways. But I um, I rebelled against all that then and struck out on my own, not knowing what I was going to do, frankly. And and here we are. The Difference Makers podcast is a great way to learn about Savannah and those who make the city tick. But there's a catch, of course, the two-week wait between episodes. Keep up with all that's going on in our town on a more regular basis by signing up for our free newsletters. We deliver an opinion page newsletter daily, and our news team does likewise. And for the foodies and Georgia Southern fans among the audience, weekly newsletters on those topics are available as well. Visit savannahnow.com newsletters now to get those newsletters delivered straight to your email inbox. Again, that's savannahnow.com newsletters. What did you, when you struck it out on your own, not knowing what you were going to find, what did you first find? Well, what I first found was this. I was, my dad died. I was going to go to med school. My dad died before med school. My Uncle Basil was alive, keeping the ice cream alive. Mm-hmm. So that was fine. Mm-hmm. I came back. I stayed here a couple of years and said, but goodbye, I'm leaving. I uh, went to New York. I've been going since childhood. My sister lived in Jersey, uh, but I had an aunt in New York and all over in Baltimore, all over the place. Mm-hmm. So I took a trainee job at Lowe's Corporation, the conglomerate, mm-hmm. um, management trainee, which meant you bring coffee and things like that. Mm-hmm. So that's when I met Carol, who was a struggling actress, Broadway actress. Mm-hmm. And that's when I, going back to the um, initial thing about the industry, that's, that's when I first got exposed. Mm-hmm. I started going to class with her. I started going to... Uh, auditions with her and I met a woman named Juliet Taylor and Juliet um, was an assistant casting director with with Marion Doherty MDA Associates back in those days and another another assistant was Wally Nasita. Wally uh, was married to Rick Nasita. We're all kids in New York. Mm-hmm. Rick became head of CAA, which is Creative Artists Agency in yeah. Los Angeles, which yeah. is huge. In fact, we talk about that we, when we see each other. You remember when we were kids in New York? And anyway, Juliet um, called me one day and said, uh, can you help me with a movie I'm casting? I said, sure. I don't know. Well, how? Yeah, what do you what want? Do I do, right? And she said, well, I'm casting a movie called The Exorcist. Yeah. And um, I need to look at the roles of the priest's uncle and his mother. 
I'm having trouble casting them. And I think you told me you speak Greek. And I said, yes, I do. Would you go to the churches with me so we can audition people? And we did. We'd go to all, all over Astoria. We'd go to churches, and I would meet the priests, and I would see these little old ladies in this case and say, and speak to them in Greek and say, yeah, Juliet is here with a big Warner Brothers script, and would you mind? This is in Greek. And just, and we, we ultimately, or she ultimately cast Titos Vandes, who is um, a well-known Greek actor, as the uncle. But the, these, the mother we found, we found her somewhere in one of the churches. So um, I did that, and then my brother-in-law, my sister's husband, was a marketing guy. George, they had met at the University of Georgia, and Becky, my sister, was an art student. Anyway, they got married. They were all over in New York. They, they went all over, but he was with Gulf and Western. He was a guy who would research a company they were going to buy and give Charlie Bluedorn the questions to ask. Mm-hmm. So he had set up a little company, um, a GN House Limited, it was called, which we were importing giftware from the Eastern Mediterranean, just things and mail order, true mail order back in those days. And I don't know if he, this idea was unique to him or if he had read it. I don't, I don't know that. The idea of kiosks in department stores mm-hmm. wasn't done back then. We're talking 1973. Uh, so he, he researched various markets. And Atlanta all came up number one in so many areas, young market, growth market. Just So he said, he said uh, would I consider going there and heading up an operation? I said, sure, because I wasn't doing much else right. except being with Carol. Mm-hmm. Carol tried Atlanta. It didn't work. We ultimately split up because she needed Broadway. She needed, she needed the stage. And mm-hmm. back in those days in Atlanta, there wasn't much. Uh, Alliance Theater was pretty much it. Anyway, through Howard, I got to know the, the, the rich family and riches. Mm-hmm. And then got to know their marketing people. Mm-hmm. Like I say, 1973 going into 74 now. And um, we discussed the possibilities of it. It wasn't being done. This, they, were, they were open to the idea of a kiosk. Mm-hmm. But they also said that um, winter 74 was going to be a soft winter, they felt. And, if, uh, and of course, Christmas is your whole season. That's yeah in retail. So I called George and said, my brother-in-law, and said, you know, I, I think let's not do it right now. Let's wait. And I was getting ready to go back to New York. And the phone rings, and it, and it, was, it, was, it, was, it was Juliet Taylor. Mm-hmm. I have a movie coming to Atlanta. I said, okay. Um, do you know anybody that does casting there? Well, I checked, and um, Ed Spivey, um, Governor, then Governor Carter, had started the, fil- started the film commission. Mm-hmm. Ed Spivey was heading it up. I mean, it was fledgling, um, to, to say the least. Mm-hmm. And there was one person that did casting. Linda Spatz was her name, or is her name. And she was busy. So I called Juliet back. There's no one here. What about you? I said, Juliet, I don't know how to do that. You casted two roles. Come on. I'll I'll walk you through it, she said. And God bless Juliet. Every day on the phone, the movie was Judge Horton and the Scottsboro Boys for ABC television. Mm -hmm. And a man named Fielder Cook directed. Fielder was related to Rodney Cook, who's who's a Georgian. Well, he has Georgia roots. Mm -hmm. So that started it in Atlanta. And back then... um, there was no tax credit. Mm-hmm. The film industry 
is because a copycat industry to a great degree. And if something is successful in an area, oh, you got to go there. The magic—it feel, feel like it's a magic involved, mm-hmm. and they want to hop on that train. Okay. So, Atlanta in the '70s and '80s, in late '70s and '80s, Burt Reynolds had a huge influence in this too. Right. Got very busy very very quickly, mm-hmm. and I rode that wave for a long time as a location manager and ultimately as a production manager. Mm-hmm. We talked about youth. We're segueing into all kind of things here. <laughs> yeah. no, uh, uh, you picking that stuff up by osmosis? Yeah. Uh, yeah, because I didn't know a damn thing. Right. I, I take trainee job. I, I started Sandy Fuller. God bless him. I was rolling sound. I was booming sound, rolling sound for Sandy. I learned. I was gaffing. I was gripping, just learning. Mm-hmm. And we could do that then because... Um, the trade unions had not established themselves in Atlanta. We were crossing categories all the time. Mm-hmm. That's, that's changed now. Mm-hmm. But um, that, that's how I started. That's, yeah. that's how the whole thing started. Yeah. Then ultimately, I was production managing. I produced a small movie in Atlanta, my first one, that a man named Gary Youngman brought to Atlanta from New York. Gary, Gary was a writer, director, editor, partial financier. I was the producer, production manager, first AD. I would haul cable. Mm-hmm. I We helped raise some money. And Gary, in fact, I just saw him in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago. Gary's great. He's the son of Henny Youngman, who oh, was, yeah. who was uh, yeah. a wonderful comic. comic. On, my, my dad used to watch on Ed Sullivan. But that, that was all in Atlanta. And everyone from, from the... Um, L.A. side, you got to move to L.A., you got to go to L.A. If you want to progress, you got to go to L.A. And I was I was loving Atlanta then. Yeah. Um, I had a wonderful garage apartment. And when I then I started commuting to L.A. for jobs and coming back to Atlanta. Right. And ultimately, when I decided I really have to go to L.A., I wanted to keep the garage apartment. So you're crazy. You can't do that. You're not going to come back. You're going. You're leaving. Right. And that, that was that was a change then. We are speaking with Stratton Leopold, film producer and ice cream parlor king, on this episode of the Difference Makers podcast. Before we continue our discussion, let's pause and recognize the Difference Makers presenting sponsor and a real difference maker in our community, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. The team at CETA is pushing to make Savannah a great place to work and live. CETA is committed to creating, growing, attracting jobs and investment in the Savannah region. Whether a business looking to relocate to the Savannah region or an existing business ready to grow and expand, CETA is the centrifuge of a propeller, making the connections, helping propel the business to success. Learn more about the Savannah Economic Development Authority and what they do in the Savannah community by visiting CETA.org. Now back to Stratton Leopold. going to really dig in deep on on where movie making and, and that is going later but let's let's wrap up the bio here how do you get back involved with the ice cream business as mentioned basil was doing it he and his wife pina basil dies pina keeps it going okay. i'd saved everything the old soda fountain which exists still what have you so Apparently, my friends in L.A. tell me, I've been talking about this for decades, for a long time. <laughs> it, it came to the point that I said, okay, I've got to do this. I'm going to do it. I, I then looked at the old place, which I, I'd rented, or went in Habersham, and I said, well, I don't think here. 
and um, and Atlas or where that was that was the original that site. was the original place on Haversham going at Haversham across, across from yeah. across from Kroger yep hmm. well, well Caddy Corner Caddy Corner yeah. yes and Johnny Mercer grew up a block away mm-hmm. I met him when I was 10 mm-hmm. Nancy his niece used to walk me to Greek school and make sure I Is went. Right? She had a deal with my mom. <laughs> anyway, um, so, I, so I decided to do it. So then uh, Laura Lawton and Polly Cooper, they were hammering me for a while. We will run it. And I, I just, come on, it's not going to, come on. So then I got a phone call from Laura. It's a Friday afternoon. We found a location for you. I said, oh, you did? Yeah. And it's going to go on the market Monday. And it'll be bought Monday. That's when Michael Brown was buying all of Broughton Street back right. in those days. Right. So we, Mary and I went downtown, and we were peering through the windows mm-hmm. and couldn't get in. And the entire, the, the, the store you see now, it was open. There, there was no wall. There was no um, wall in the center there. Left-hand side was a beauty salon. With, with four stations, right hand side was a church. Mm-hmm. Same person mm-hmm. owned it, and she was renting. So um, Johnny Wiley, that's Polly's brother, had the listing. So we talked. Mary and I talked about it, and I said, "Well, good location." Although that was the end of the line back then. Trustees was next door, and that was it. Nothing was beyond it back in, back in those days. Mm-hmm. There was no Blick. There was no breakfast place, nothing. Yeah. Um, so I just went ahead and, and um, offered the asking price. Mm-hmm. And, true, and then that Saturday, um, we're at Johnny's office. <laughs> he and I, with our four fingers, two each, typing up the agreements and everything. And it was true that Monday morning another offer for the same price came in, but I, I was first in line, right. so I got it. Right. Then I went away and did a film, so a couple of years go by, yeah. and came back. And Danny Lamino, who I'd done a couple of films, he's, he's a production designer, a couple of films with Danny. Danny came down, God bless him, and spent almost eight months here or something, helping with the design and build-out. Couldn't have done it without Danny. Mm-hmm. Um, treating it from a theatrical standpoint as a, as a set, right. and yet practical, because it had to work. It's, it's not fake, so it had to work. Yeah. What were your expectations? Did you, did you anticipate uh, it being a... Uh, it, it, was, it was an homage to my dad. Mm-hmm. My expectations, didn't, uh, neighborhood store, didn't know. Had no idea what was going to happen like this. Mm-hmm. No idea of this. Yeah. Old family recipes? Or? Oh, yeah, I'd save all that, of course. Yeah. That, so was you, a, that was in a CNS bank vault. So you, uh, is that right? Yeah. So, so, you knew, so you knew the quality of the food was, was yeah, good. Yeah, but the, the challenge really was um, in, ingredients because uh, many of our suppliers, especially cream, uh, were out of business. What happened in the dairy industry and continues, um, the smaller dairies, we had. We had three dairies, as I recall, that we bought cream from. My dad had a theory. We would would drink the cream by itself, taste it by itself, because just to get the taste of the cream, if a cow ate a lot of onion onion weed, it would translate. So all of a sudden you're faced with the fact that the large dairies, the large conglomerates have bought them all up and not interested in dealing with a small company. Mm -hmm. So we had searched far and wide. We found found what we needed. 
Um, and then you start looking ingredient-wise. Um, okay, the pecans we used to get. Now, okay, we, now we get them. They're 80 miles away. We used to get them closer. Mm-hmm. But a company roasts them for us. So you need, then you, you have to start sourcing everything, mm-hmm. which we did. And prior to making any ice cream, or we made test batches, but mm-hmm. prior to doing anything. And are you learning as you go on this, just like you did back in the day with with learning the movie business? Or well, yeah, yeah. you learn constantly. Yeah, uh, and that's true of anything. Right. I think right. if you're open to that, if you're not, then you stagnate. Yeah. Obviously, in film, the massive changes, but in, in ice cream too. I mean, you're looking at marketing differences. How do you, right. for instance, uh, our creamery? We're not at capacity. So what do we do? Um, once we get once we get the old place online, that'll help a lot, of course. Mm-hmm. But we have the capacity to make more, so uh, we're looking at licensing, just just various things. We haven't really we we make beautiful ice cream cakes. We haven't really pushed that that much. It's spectacular. The woman that makes them for us uh, is Michelle's great. Mm-hmm. Um, we do ship pints nationally, mm-hmm. um, which is which is growing, actually. Kathy Grove does an amazing job with catering. We, we do quite a quite a substantial catering business. She's great. She just all over my goodness, southeast practically. I mean, we um, just came back from New York. Carrie Ferraro does branding for us. We go up there with Joe Marinelli and visit Savannah, and that's a Savannah thing. Right. But we happily do that. It's and just to get out there and yeah. and talk about Savannah. Timing obviously was was part of this. You you opened down there when Broughton Street is really starting to yes. really explode. What else is it? Was it the quality of the ice cream? Was it the marketing work you were doing? What do you think were some of the keys to, to how quickly and how strongly the business has grown? I think several things. Um, obviously, the job the Visit Savannah does, bringing, what, 13, 14 million people here. That's, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a lot of eyeballs. That's mm-hmm. a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, we we're fortunate enough to be an old company. We're fortunate enough to have a, a great product, mm-hmm. and we have a story. Couple that with the fascination people have with the film industry. Right. I've had guests come up to me. I try to be in a shop as much as I can. I enjoy that. And literally hyperventilating and saying, you, you know Tom Cruise? I said, yes, I do. <laughs> and and that's what well, my autograph. I said, well, okay, but uh, I'm not Tom Cruise. <laughs> I'm not going to sign it, Tom Cruise. For you, no, sorry. but people are fascinated by film and by the fact that I've worked with these people. Yeah. It's all about story, whether it's movies or, or ice cream. Yeah, it, it is all about story. And like I say, we've been blessed with the fact that we have. Let's stay with the ice cream shop. Yes. I know that with your 100th anniversary, you've got a lot of other things going on. You have the I Pledge program. Program, you have the creative writing program. Share with us what you guys are doing now with with the 100th anniversary and what we can expect. We had an amazing block party. We have one every year. Mm-hmm. But this year, there were 12,000 people, we figure. during it's, it's our give back in a way. Yeah. It was just an incredible day. Now, throughout the year, we'll be having events. We'll do something at Christmas. I'm not sure completely what yet. I know that'll be announced soon. Mm-hmm. And then things in the spring going up to August of next year. So it'll be an interesting year, a fun year. We're, we're publishing a centennial book, which will be out soon, too, which takes the history of when my dad first came to this country. He was a youngster. He was um, 11, 12 years old with my Uncle George. Mm-hmm. 
and it follows their chronology all the way to Savannah and ice cream and how that started. My dad fought in the First World War with Morris Levy, actually. I have a photograph. Morris Levy was a man that had a men's shop in Savannah. And I never understood, as, as a youngster, if my dad wanted to buy a hat, a suit, a tie, anything, he went to Morris Levy's and always asked for him. Mm-hmm. He'd come out of the office and they, they'd, they'd, they'd chat and he'd buy something. And then... When I was researching for this book, Finding Old Photos, I found a photo from the First World War. And there's my dad with Maurice Levy. So they fought together in France. Right. Small so, world. Small world. The I Pledge. Mm-hmm. Thing this I Pledge. Big deal. Yeah. A lot of fun, right? Uh, a lot of fun. Well, uh, actually, Jan Mackey, who's, who's, who's a, 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 good, a good customer, a friend of ours, 10 years ago, I guess it is now, close to it, came to me and said, wouldn't it be great if a child came in and could recite the Pledge of Allegiance, you'd do something for them? And I said, yeah, it's a great, let's do something. Mm-hmm. So we then, the first year, and every year since then, we hang an American flag between our two dining rooms, put little velvet ropes up, create a little photo stage, if you will, dais. And if, if we do it every Monday during July, which is National Ice Cream Month. Mm-hmm. And a child 11 and under, they can come in certain hours, I think 4 to, four to 7, and recites the pledge from memory gets a free ice cream cone. Yeah. So the first year, there were two or 300 kids came in. We were given an award by the national ice cream retailers before that. And then I had the idea, I became inflamed with the idea, well, if we can do it, everybody, everybody should do it. So what we did is we created a website, ipledgeforicecream.com. And on the website, we put all of our promotional material with our name off of it. Mm -hmm. All we want is for other shops to do it. We want nothing from it, Mm -hmm. just for the kids to do it. Mm -hmm. And we are represented in over 40 states now and going for 50. So also during this year, we're going to try to get it up to 50. Yeah, that's a great program. It's it's something, I mean, it's just so gratifying to see kids come in. I remember the first time I heard a kid do it in Latin. I'm listening, and I took Latin at Benedictine. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, I recognize words. And I said, what language is that? It was Latin. I gave them two ice creams, I think. <laughs> um, Don't tell people that. They'll come in with different languages. And I know. Well, that, that's fine. <laughs> um, we've had little, little, little kids, three-year-olds reciting it. It's incredible. You know, I don't know how much civics is being taught in schools, right. but, but it, this, it's just gratifying to see, to see kids put the hand over their heart in front of the flag and say the pledge. Yeah, every little bit helps, that's for sure. Yep. So beyond the retail store on Broughton, you have the building at Haversham Gwinnett we mentioned earlier, and I yep. know that you have plans for that building. You've also got a manufacturing site. You're doing some wholesaling. Beyond what is obvious on Broughton Street, fill us in on what the business is doing. Well, we're, we have two operations at the airport. We have a shop before security and a kiosk after security. And the airport's wonderful. I mean, Greg does a great job out there, and just it's, it's a good operation. And the reason why I mentioned I was in San Antonio, there was a, there was a meeting of airport managers from across the country because we'd like to be in other airports as well. Right. So specifically, I was talking to Jacksonville, Charlotte, Tampa, Charleston, places like that. And that's a business that we'd like to to get into more. 
Um, Matt, talk a little bit more about the Haversham Gwinnett site. I, I know that that was a, that was a long, hard fight with the Historic Board of Review, and you finally got it squared away, and you have big plans for opening something there, right? Yeah, we 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 got into an issue about the exterior. That's all solved, and it's 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 done. It's over. Mm-hmm. Now it's all up to me. And the plan there is to create what was there, and for several reasons. One. Of course, for me, it's it's nostalgic, mm-hmm. but that's not not necessarily good enough. It'll be a neighborhood store like it was. Mm-hmm. Savangans don't always want to stand in line, right. and parking's an issue, and on Broad and what have you. So it'll be a place that Savangans know. Mm-hmm. Second, it'll be a place we get calls constantly to shut down for birthday parties for children or for adults, what have you. In the early days on Broughton, I could do it, but I can't now. It's just too busy. So I can do that there. Uh, Thirdly, as as a facility that when we're training our staff in order not to throw them into the crucible of, of a long line of people, have a place that they can start learning soda jerking mm-hmm. in, in a more controlled environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the real question is what to do with the upstairs, whereas we're, that's where I grew up, actually. And right now we're thinking to make it just to, just to finish it out and make it perhaps um, rental space for events or something, or something like that. We just don't know what to do with it. Right. Any time frame on, on any of this? A couple of years ago. A couple of years ago. Yeah. <laughs> now um, it always is, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a matter of, of, of just doing it. It really is. It's up to me. And, of course, the permitting process, getting involved sure. in that again. Sure. Which is a segue into... Savannah, doing business in Savannah. Yeah. Right. Timetable-wise for, for Gwinnett Street, it'll take us eight, nine, ten months to build it out, I'm guessing. Um, because we've there's nothing inside. We've taken out everything. Even the tin ceiling, I've stored it. I have the tin ceiling, but it's been it's out. So the building, interestingly enough, um, was, was, was falling down. My dad... When they put in air conditioning in 1950-something, um, the demise, the, that, that, building started, that building started life as two Victorian homes in 1890. All that's left of that is one chimney. Um, at some point, it may have been in the early 1900s, after they got it, I'm not sure. Because uh, the, the initial building had a stoop. It was probably the, the parlor floor is about three feet up because you can tell by the fireplace where the, the fireplace is. They made it ground level. None of that structure remains. So um, the demising wall, which was load-bearing between the two, was there. So in the 1950s, when they put in air conditioning, I'm, I've forgotten who the contractor was, for circulation, this before a lot of ducting, they wanted that wall to not be there. So what they did is they cut most of it out and for support, scabbed two by fours together to hold up that. <laughs> and as uh, over the decades, the right. building sort of collapsed in the middle. Yeah. So it was down in the middle, probably half a foot. Mm-hmm. And in the 19, I'm, I'm guessing at the years now, 80s, probably it was, because the building had, on Historic Savannah's books, had no historic significance. I actually had a demo permit, mm-hmm. an approved demo permit. And 
I and the nostalgia for me is I can't do it. I can't tear it down. Should have, because it costs so much to yeah, lift it back yeah, up. <laughs> anyway, ultimately we had a jacket back. I mean, over over the years, it took a while to, to get it back level and actually build, put steel in. Difference Makers podcast to remind you about our other regular podcasts, such as the At Savannah Opinion Commute, hosted by yours truly with a new episode that posts every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. The commute is the easiest way to keep up with the latest news and happenings that Savannians are talking about. Search for The Commute with At Savannah Opinion on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe. Episodes are also available through the savannahnow.com website at savannahnow.com slash podcast. You can also check out our other podcasts, the Do Savannah podcast with its emphasis on local arts and entertainment, and the daily See You in the Morning podcast that offers a roundup of the day's So let me transition you here as we as we start to to wrap up to talk a little bit more about movie making and filmmaking. And I have I have two topics. One is Savannah and film. Obviously, you've been a part of of the, the explosion here in town, but also the I guess the proper way to put it would be the demise of the studio model and how mm-hmm. movies are being made and marketed and brought to market now. Of course, last year we saw Academy Awards go to to films that were made by streaming services. Yeah. Uh, Let's start there and then finish up with Savannah and film. Okay. What about the studio model? What about the future of, of bringing films to the market? Well, the studio model has, is, is changing and has changed. Um, studios like Paramount are do, typically are doing big-budget um, pictures, which cost upwards of $100 million to $200 million. The challenge with that is... If you don't perform the first weekend, you're gonna it's gonna hurt you, mm-hmm. and that has been the challenge for big budget for a long time. It started several years ago. It was we called it in, internally in the studio the Twitter effect because um, we could see if if we spent seventy million dollars promoting a movie the first weekend and it performed on Friday, and all of a sudden we see a dip on Saturday. If it, we, 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 started, we, we started surmising at the studio, people are twittering each other, it's, you know, don't go, don't go, and it's going to hurt us. Hmm. So that was the beginning of it, and perhaps we didn't embrace it as well as we should. I, I parallel that with, um, with the record industry. Right. Um, the labels were very strong when Napster came out. Mm-hmm. Napster was a free service. The college kids put it out there, and they were pirating songs. Mm-hmm. The record labels fought them, and ultimately to their, to their, to their almost demise, and ultimate demise probably. Yeah. They shut down Napster, but... But, yeah, <laughs> but. They shut themselves down because right. it sprung up. So I think in a similar vein, with the rise of streaming, with the rise of Amazon, Netflix... Apple, f- folks that have guaranteed income um, in the film industry, mm-hmm. as opposed to a studio that does, I mean, you, you're gambling yeah. each time. Yeah, the so from the high. days of Louis Mayer, you're gambling. Mm-hmm. But you have you have guaranteed income. It's a whole different ball game now, and they'll put it out for a few weeks to get the Academy recognition, mm-hmm. and then go straight to streaming. Mm-hmm. That. That with the rise of home box, not home box office, that's a whole different world. I have friends there. It's very different now. But with with home theater, Mm -hmm. when you have a screen as big as your wall and great sound, Mm -hmm. 
I mean, it's there's still a need for the shared experience in a theater. I, I, I truly believe that, especially for for big picture. Mm-hmm. But there'll be fewer and far between. And this was forecast years ago that there'll be fewer and far between big pictures because of this, and it's happening now. Does that explain why the only I don't want to say the only the majority of films that we see coming out of the studios now are the are the franchise films, whether they're comic books or superheroes or Star Wars? Well, it's or, the market. Okay. It's the market. Um, for instance, films that interest me at this point in my life and career now are films that are story-driven that would appeal to an audience that wants story. Right. And I actually pitched it. The, the president of Paramount's a friend, and I pitched. And he was very nice. Jim said, you know, when you finish, we'd love to see it after you do it. Well, that's, that's fine. I need something <laughs> before I do it. But anyway, right. um, the, the perception is they can't market to, to the youngsters that, that, that will go two and three times right. to see a, a big a, a comic book picture. Yeah, lower risk. Yep. Yeah. They, they're more guaranteed of getting their money back and making yeah. a profit. And, and if they're spending $300 million, $200 million or, or more, you, you have, to, of course, when I was an executive at Paramount, I would try the counter argument, mm-hmm. uh, where it's in the meetings I would say we're ignoring a part of the audience that wants story. Why can't we do smaller pictures? And I'd be told bluntly, we're not in that business. Yeah, and that'll be that's going to hurt. That's going to hurt the studios. How does that change opportunities for somebody like you, who's still active, who is still looking for scripts, looking for stories? Then building directors and talent and yeah. executive producing. It makes it difficult. Um, it makes it difficult only because you have to go to um, other sources for funding to make the picture. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I've always said this, you never know where it's going to come from. Right. Um the classic sources, their banks in Los Angeles, of course, the studios in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. but they're all tied to the, 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 the big budget, quick, quick return. Mm-hmm. Now, I get asked frequently, why haven't you gone to Netflix? Well, I don't have those contacts yet. And right. I'm not in L.A. I prefer being in Savannah. Does it hurt me sometimes? Yeah, it does, not being in L.A., yeah. but I'm happier being here, so I'll, 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 I'll take the harder road right now. Right. So the process for you is to... Is is to basically produce and make the the movie on your own with funding from other sources. Sources. Then go to find distribution and distribute. Well, um, for instance, with, with the picture I'm, right now that I'm dealing with, I have interest from Sony uh-huh. Classics to distribute. Uh-huh. So there 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 are folks out there who appreciate smaller pictures, but you can't make that. You, you've got to be very careful with budget. You can't you can't spend a lot of money, which creates a challenge then for the actors, uh-huh. because. In fact, I was on the phone last night with the casting director. Um, the challenge is the $20 million actor, which uh, that's a huge studio picture. Mm-hmm. You have to convince them to do it for a fraction of that. Mm-hmm. So they have to really love the material. Right. right. Actors will do that if they, love, if they really feel the material is enough to stretch them. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they will. Yeah. Enough of them. Uh, there's enough of them that have enough money in the. Yeah. In the bank that they're looking to. Well, as another another book I have, and I've known Ben Affleck for a number of years. And I just gave it. I said, Ben, ain't gonna pay you much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you you make your money on Batman. Right. Right. Uh, excuse my ignorance, but who 
in that situation, who handles the marketing? Is that the distributor? Is that you? Marketing? Yeah. Distributor, typically. Distributor does that. Um, I get involved in it. Even, even at the studio, I get involved in that. Mm-hmm. But you have departments at the studio. But in this case, it's the distributor. And typically, for an independent, you're looking at smaller distributors. Mm-hmm. Um, the models that used to be in place where you could four-wall yourself and go, those, those are mostly gone now because... You, but you go for small distributors that will leave it in the theaters more than one weekend. Mm-hmm. That's your challenge because you don't have the money. A small distributor doesn't either to, to market it as much as you can't, you can't blanket television with ads. Mm-hmm. So have the ability to choose a market, choose the theaters that will leave it even though it's not performing, they feel, but it has the potential and let it grow some. That's a challenge. It's tough. Mm-hmm. Let's finish up talking about Savannah and film. I, I think we were talking earlier that whether it's Big Chill or Forrest Gump or Midnight and then eventually General's Daughter in 1999, how has how has filmmaking in Savannah evolved and what uh, I guess what are your observations as what's happened in the last 25, 30 well, years? Well, Savannah has always been a, a, a great set, especially for period pictures. I mean, we shot Savannah for a period in New York, Washington, everything. Um, so it's great for that. It's great for, uh, for a look. Obviously, because of what Savannah is. Um, I'm hopeful that Savannians will continue to embrace it because I've seen in other cities, take Beverly Hills, for example. Beverly Hills has become so stringent with rules, Pasadena also, so burnt out on film, it's imp- almost impossible to I mean, film there. Mm-hmm. Lights out, I mean, you have to be out of there before. I mean, it's, they, they imposed a lot of restrictions on you. Hopefully, we'll have support here. Um, the future, we're, we're growing a crew base here. We've, we've always been um, dependent on Atlanta prior to the union's gerrymandering. Savannah into a different local um, for a lot of crew, but we are growing a crew, a crew base here, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. The the governor just appointed me to to the state film commission again, so we always talk about Savannah there as well because we offer a unique look mm-hmm. and a wonderful city to be in. Um, I spoke years ago over the JEA about this and brought a friend in who'd experienced it. There was a company in Seattle, no, Spokane, Washington, that what they had done, and it's a model that could work here because Savannah is a place people want to live. What they had done is they raised a certain amount of money and they would offer to a smaller film, to say a five, six million dollar film, they would offer soup to nuts. They had access to or owned equipment, a little stage, editing facilities. So what they would do is say, we will produce your movie for, pick a number, for half a million less, just pick a number there, mm-hmm. and guarantee it with, with, with a completion bond. Then they would have crew on staff, skeleton crew on staff, 12, 12 months a year, having, having made a deal with the unions, with, with both the, the, the crafts union and Teamsters, to employ them at a rate perhaps a little bit less than what they would normally get if they're freelance, but freelancers work three or four months a year only. They would, they would get the film done for the producer of the picture. Mm-hmm. Their profitability came from whatever they could get from the credit from the credits and um, 
what they could save on the on the front end, but the film got done. The model worked in Spokane. And I feel it could work here because crew, I mean, people want to live here mm-hmm. as opposed to Atlanta or opposed to big cities. Mm-hmm. So it's a model that could happen, hasn't happened yet, could happen. It would take funding to set up this company and, and market it. Mm-hmm. But it's something to think about. Mm-hmm. So we have the state incentives. We have local incentives. We have potential for that. The other thing talk of, people talk about is a soundstage. Is that a big hindrance about, for us? Yeah, we've talked about soundstages like at least 20 years. There's a little more activity now. Soundstage is important. <laughs> Excuse me. A soundstage is important for smaller pictures, for series work. Yes. If a picture, if a studio picture comes in, they may want to film. They can film anywhere at that point, and they'll they want to advantage the tax credit. But then, if there if there are thirty stages in Atlanta, that that, that they may well film that part there. If we have stages, we'll we'll never have. We can never compete with that. Okay. But if we had a small stage complex, two to four stages, you can accomplish several things. One. You have cover set for a larger picture where they can where we can build a set, have it ready to shoot in case it rains, whatever. Mm-hmm. Two, if a series comes in, it's one it's one shooting here now actually. The Bruce Fowler's book is shooting right That's now. Right. Yep. Um, they typically for that they, they want permanent sets. Mm-hmm. So you, you need something for that. Mm-hmm. And they would need at least a couple of stages, I would think. And three, if ever you wanted to get a game show. Mm-hmm. If you, that could be promoted here, much like um, Savannah Theater does a great job on promoting, bringing in busloads of folks to see see the shows there. Yes. You could easily, I don't know how easily, you, you could potentially, um, if, if you had a studio here and a game show, mm-hmm. like in Atlanta, because we have, in a sense, I would I would venture to say, and Joe Marinelli who could back me up maybe, I would venture to say that the number of tourists we have coming through here is opposed to Atlanta. Sure, mm-hmm. there's six million people there, but we have 14 million tourists. Mm-hmm. If you could attract a game show that depended on, depended upon folks coming in, mm-hmm. you could do some business, I think. And then you'd have a permanent or a, per- a permanent more steady uh, yeah. revenue stream yeah. in order to fund something. Uh, we talk about that. People talk about headwinds in the state right now. The governor's committed to the tax credit. Uh, we've seen some some stuff this year in terms of the fetal heartbeat bill. Where do you see filmmaking in Savannah and Georgia a year from now, five years from now? The heartbeat bill has had an effect. I had a meeting with the governor about this, and um, yes, it's had an effect. Um, his comment was... Why are we being hammered when the same bills are in Louisiana all over over the South? Mm. And my comment was because we have all the business and they're jealous. That's why. Yeah, they're using that leverage Um, against us. Ultimately, the treasurer of a studio is going to look at the bottom line. Now, having said that, I know we're getting hammered by New Mexico Mm -hmm. and Louisiana to a lesser degree. Um, South Carolina, I'm not sure of. But I think it... it's hurting us now. Will it continue? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Five years from now, I think it will be a non-issue. Mm-hmm. But for the one year, yeah, it will have an effect. Yeah. 
So Ratton, thank you for agreeing to come in and be our difference maker today. Fascinating conversation. I feel like we could probably spend another hour, so maybe we'll do a sequel somewhere down the road. All right. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's been fun. We haven't talked about politics and splost yet and all that, but there are <laughs> things to talk about that in the future of Savannah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a big fan of Savannah. Yeah. Thanks to Stratton Leopold for sharing his story on Difference Makers. Thank you also to our presenting sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Tap into the Difference Makers archives anytime on your favorite podcast app to hear interviews with more of Savannah's community leaders, such as Savannah business icon Don Waters, Savannah's new mayor Van Johnson, and the Georgia Port Authority's Griff Lynch. Difference Makers is a production of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. Our next episode will post April 3rd. Thank you for listening.